topic this week is infrastructure. We had a bipartisan compromise come out from President Biden as well as a group of senators last week and uh, not entirely expected in that moment, although I think not not unexpected in the grand scheme of things either, Errol. It's infrastructure week finally, Mike. We, we can kind of say that with some accuracy, question mark. Well, and, and I think again and again and again from here. <laughs> with us to, to help unpack all things infrastructure in the United States is Sundar Ramanujam of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We really unpack in this episode uh, a lot of the Venn diagram overlap of what is in the the potential bipartisan deal, quote unquote, and, and what the actual needs are in the United States. As many listeners may know, we record these conversations live each Tuesday night on the Green Room app. And we were lucky this week to be also joined by a friend of the show. And former guest, Donna Sien Rui. So stay tuned for that. All right, let's get into it. Let's do it. Welcome to News and Brews, everybody. Hello. Very excited this week to be talking about infrastructure. Errol, it is at long last Infrastructure Week. I thought it had been in- Infrastructure Week for like four years. <laughs> Should we give a little bit of the background on why Infrastructure Week is such like a running joke in Washington? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. So it comes from 2017, right? Something like that. Really early in the Trump administration, yeah, I think it was Politico asked the, the Trump White House why they didn't have any congressional priorities. And they said, we do. Infrastructure is our top priority, and of course, no infrastructure-related anything had been communicated from the White House to the Hill, and so the, it became sort of a running joke. Is it? Oh, is it? Is it Infrastructure Week? And so, anytime anything related to infrastructure came out, Washington became a buzz with "It's finally Infrastructure Week." The insider baseball title of today, specifically, it was the week that the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally happened. And so you had this press conference where, I hate to say this, but I, I kind of felt some sympathy for Elaine Chao, the transportation secretary at the time, despite the fact that she married Mitch McConnell, like, on purpose and chose to work for Donald Trump. But, like, she was standing there uh, at what was supposed to be an infrastructure-themed press conference with the president. And instead, he's talking about fine people on both sides and doing his best to destroy the country. Another reason why Infrastructure Week became a punchline, because it was just all sorts of ridiculousness. However, what we're going to talk about today is that there actually was another press conference within the last week of politicians in D.C. to talk about infrastructure that might or might not actually turn into legislation that, as we will discuss on on this episode, may prove to update our crumbling infrastructure in, in the United States of, of America. So I, I think it's a rather optimistic title, but let's go with It's Infrastructure Week. And here to, to help us go through some of these, these issues on infrastructure is one of CSIS's infrastructure gurus, my friend, uh, Sundar Ramanujam. So Sundar, thanks for joining. Can you tell us just a little, give, give the audience a little bit of a teaser as to why this is an important week in infrastructure land. I, we're going to delve much deeper into it later, but if you could just kind of let us know what some of the highlights are right now, uh, and, and maybe we'll get people listening beyond the first round. Yeah, thanks, Errol, and thanks, Mike, for um, letting me be part of this really cool, uh, cool exercise. And uh, yeah, Errol, like you mentioned, that this infrastructure is pretty important. There, I could take there's a multi-dimensional explanation why I call it important. There is a whole geopolitical lens to it that ranges from market capture, both domestically and abroad, and what means for you know new technologies and the standards that come out of it. Or we could talk about 
the kind of chokeholds and bottlenecks we've had within our own economy because of a very outdated infrastructure that probably hasn't gotten an upgrade or tweaking since uh, the 50s. You know, the way we get this done, the amount of money we are committing to it and how it impacts the middle class in America, there is obvious political economic and social dimensions to it, especially at this stage of our public life. Uh, so lots of uh, ways I could dissect this, and I'm excited to talk more about this. And, and here I was, silly me, thinking we were just going to talk about roads and bridges. <laughs> um, b- before we dive in, Mike, it's news and brews. What brew are you working with tonight? Very special first news and brews, technically, of summer, I think, this week. Maybe second. That's okay. It feels like summer. It's like a zillion degrees outside. So that's let's right. just go with it's it's summer. Uh, so I'm drinking a National Bohemian. That's a Natty <laughs> Bow for those of us uh, who grew up in Maryland. Um, and honestly, it just tastes like pure summer in a can. This, I would say, is like a, a beautiful flower that hasn't gotten anywhere near wilting to a cruel, sad caricature of its former self yet. Just, just a really happy drink. <laughs> <laughs> also, just reminds me of college. Is that wrong? I don't think that's wrong at all. I think that's quite consistent. The other thing I'll say is we've got a very special pairing this week. I think this is the first uh, News and Brews pairing we've had, which wow. is along with the Natty Bow. Uh, I've got here an Oreo that is uh, America-themed Oreo cookies. <laughs> Found these bad boys in Target this week. They've got red, white, and blue cream in the middle. And inside that cream is Pop Rocks candy. It's okay. like it's like fireworks in your mouth. It's bipartisanship in your mouth. <laughs> That's right. Red Here's what you need to do, Mike. Red. Here's what you need to do. Make it into an Oreo bridge. Just <laughs> Wait, what's what's an Oreo bridge? Just make a bridge out of the Oreos. It's infrastructure week, man. Ah, the program. Perfect. Perfect. Sundar, what are you drinking? So, keeping up with the uh, soccer team of the 2020 Euro Championship Cup, I decided to go for my favorite beer, Carlsberg, brought to you by the Royal Danish Court. It's a premium Danish pilsner, and their words not mine, probably the best beer in the world. And I do not have enough guts to question them because I actually really like this beer and I've liked it for a while. So stick with it, stick with it. It's, um, you know, we, we did the Belgian thing a a few weeks ago and and now we'll do the Danish thing. And I have to say, um, hats off to the, to the Danish soccer team who really rebounded. We talked a few weeks ago about one of their players having a heart attack uh, during a game and they just really rallied and, and are now, believe in the quarterfinals of the Euro 2020 uh, slash 21 tournament. So, you know, hats off to, to Denmark and Sundar, hats off to you for for celebrating them with probably one of the best beers in the world. No, no, probably the best. No one of those, just the best beer in the world. Like, they I are just, pretty confident. This isn't <laughs> a show like for modesty. Needed, yeah, I feel like it needed a couple more caveats. That's... Uh, <laughs> Um, so I am drinking a Pony Express from Cave Hill Farms Brewery in McGayesville, Virginia. Why am I drinking such a random beer from such a random place? Well, I happen to be on vacation with my family um, about five minutes from that brewery last week. And this happens to be a, a Belgian blonde style uh, that they had actually discontinued, but they had, I think, two or three uh, crowlers left, which I had to Google that. And apparently it's a 32-inch can. I just said yes when they said, do you want the crowler? And I didn't realize that I would be required then to drink 32 ounces of Belgian blonde-style beer in, in one sitting. So I, I have to say that um, I I am enjoying the notes of banana, pepper, and that, you know, sweet, sweet Belgian yeast. But, you know, Mike, you should probably ask me how I like it at the end of the episode. So do you have a 32-ounce beer in front of you right now? Maybe. (laughs) All right, Sundar, it's our job to drag this conversation out as long. (laughs) Also, fun fact about this farm, uh, it's been in the same family since it was granted to them by King George II, 
in the mid, uh, I believe it was mid 1700s. So underrated King yeah. George, that second. <laughs> I know nothing about that, but he, it sounds very prim and proper and very white that it was passed on that way. But Mike, should we get to the first round? Let's jump in. First round. Noted failure in business, marriage, governing, elections, and blogging, Donald Trump held his first rally since his last one on January 6th. I'm honestly telling you this because I don't, I don't really think a lot of people know. Uh, even didn't. Twitter didn't care about this one. <laughs> I, I basically was like, why are, why are these two people on Twitter talking about Donald Trump? Oh, he's, wait, where is he? What is he doing? So, yeah. I, I think I reasonably pay attention and had no idea this was happening. It, it is sort of interesting that, you know, he was in Ohio for this rally and he wasn't rallying against Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton or critical race theory or whatever. He was there because he's backing a primary challenger to Republican representative Anthony Gonzalez, who voted to impeach him in January. Um, so I think it'll just be interesting to watch, right? If his primary challengers don't do well in 2022, uh, you know, it might not even matter if he's in prison by 2024. For that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even going to try to analyze what's going on in that man's head and, and what his political calculus is of where he deploys himself and where he doesn't. But I think the one through theme is going to be uh, it will always be about Donald Trump. Yeah, I think uh, we, we should take no comfort in uh, anyone's fate being decided by Republican primary voters. So there's that. Moving on. Uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, appeared last week before the House Armed Services Committee to testify about the Defense Department budget, intending to speak to the number of aircraft, ships, tanks, and weapons the military will own next year. Instead, General Milley owned Florida Representative Matt Gates, responding to antagonistic questions about critical race theory, saying, I'll have to get smarter on what the theory is, but I do think it's important, actually, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university, and it's important that we train and we understand. And I want to understand white rage. I'm white, and I want to understand it. What is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building, meaning the U.S. Capitol, and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? End quote. Uh, hearing this, the worst white people in America collectively said, sure, we'll show you white rage. Uh, Tucker Carlson on air called General Milley a stupid pig. <laughs> While I figured Vance, you were going to go with Tucker Carlson. I just, I had an inkling. My... <laughs> while, while J.D. Vance tweeted, uh, I personally would like American generals to read less about white rage, whatever that is, and more about not losing wars. Uh, end quote. Interestingly, after calling into question whether there was even a white rage to understand, Vance began his next tweet in the thread, what I find so enraging. Dr. No, no. That's real. <laughs> seriously absolutely uh fact is funnier than fiction uh, i tell you what yeah i i do remember a time way back when when it was republicans who supported the military and liberals who were the cowards but maybe i'm just getting old we we are all grateful that we have freedom of speech that's the only way we find out who the idiots are so props <laughs> to that well said in news from across uh the pacific pond apple daily closed in hong kong apple daily is this long-running tabloid slash newspaper in hong kong that had really been kind of a symbol of of democracy and it's it was sort of sad that uh, in the last few days they published their last edition which quickly sold out so this was not closing due to lack of interest in their products but definitely closing because of chinese authoritarianism and quite frankly i don't care if this podcast gets banned in china because what happened to Apple Daily and what's happening in Hong Kong. The crackdown on dissent of all kinds, including the media, putting in people in jail, etc. It's just wrong. Uh, I just think, quite frankly, that it's wrong. I'm pretty sure I wasn't on President Xi's Christmas card list anyway, so I'm not that worried about it. Fair to say, Errol, our Chinese listenership is not uh, sky high to begin with. I'm pretty sure we can check that, and I'm pretty sure it's still at zero. Confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> 
coming back back across the Pacific, the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. is currently a fiery hellscape, uh, with Portland, Oregon breaking all-time records three days in a row, 108 on Saturday, 112 on Sunday, 116 on Monday. Power cables have melted. Streets are cracking and buckling under the heat. Uh, when reached for comment, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said, thanks, but this is a little on the nose. Honestly, like, just tone it down a bit. <laughs> uh, yeah. I also feel like I just I, there's just visions that I have of some sort of Stephen King novel or some sort of, you know, apocalyptic movie or something about the heat dome. Get Pauly, What's get that? Holy Shore in there. I bet Polly Shore would be cast in that. But yeah, so, you know, we we wanted to end um, the first round on a much more somber note, honestly, um, I'm sure everybody is aware there was a tragic building collapse in South Florida and the building collapsed during the middle of the night uh, last Thursday. At time of recording, it's, it's Tuesday night, the 29th of, of June, um, 12 people are confirmed to have died, but that toll is undoubtedly going to rise since um, upwards of 150 people are still unaccounted for. And so obviously there's lots of grief and, and rage and questions. And I think that we're, it's going to take a really long time to know exactly what happened, but there are already some themes coming out and those themes point to structural issues in the building that had actually been pointed out several years ago. And Mike, as I was watching the coverage of this and, and, you know, seeing the, the building itself and photos and everything. I was just thinking back to when I was a senior in high school, there were two really bad earthquakes in um, the Marmara region of, of Turkey. And I, I helped coordinate uh, the sort of my high school's humanitarian response, however small we, you know, was, winter was coming and, and we collected jackets and food and, and some other items and it was actually, as an aside, a, a seminal moment in me deciding to do the work in humanitarian aid and, and international development that I ended up going into. But I just remember driving into this town called Duzje and seeing basically the entire town looked like that building in South Florida. They were bad earthquakes, don't get me wrong, but the level of devastation and leveling there raised a lot of questions in my adolescent mind. And uh, as I continued to follow that story and, and sort of thinking back to following that story this week when I was seeing the, the South Florida, I kept thinking about structural codes and all of these really boring things that, you know, condo associations and buildings and owners don't like to deal with because they're expensive and they're, you know, sort of annoying to deal with. And, and yet when you don't deal with them, there is just incredible tragedy that, that can come out of this. And so I, one good thing to have happened, it's hard to think about good things that happen out of tragedies like this, but in Turkey, there was sort of a renewed focus on, building codes writ large. Um, I'm not sure, I haven't followed it in the past decade or so, but you know, new buildings that were being constructed had to be constructed to a certain code and, and you know, builders that cut corners were prosecuted, et cetera. You know, similarly already, there's a silver lining emerging out of the Surfside, South Florida uh, tragedy that a building audit is currently being conducted across the country, uh, sorry, across the county, which is I believe Miami-Dade County. And according to, to Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava, that audit has already uncovered serious issues. And so, Mike, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say we should probably all be doing regular building audits and act quickly on the findings, especially if there's like cracks in the concrete and stuff. I'm not crazy to ask that, right? Yeah, it seems like it was a pretty gross uh, oversight. And, and one of these issues that, that sort of sits at the intersection of one group of people exploiting another lack of, of oversight from any governmental organization um, and just really try. Yeah, one can only hope that once the um, sort of tragedy, I mean, the families will never move on. That's not something that we should say or even think. But but I think once the it, it pivots from sort of rescue to rebuilding, I think um, a, a refocused um, 
refocused effort on building codes and and sort of following the the somewhat boring bureaucratic building codes and things like that um, should definitely should definitely come out of this hopefully yeah I'll just add I think you know this um, is one more event like this that um, is is sort of radicalizing right you see um, this level of suffering this level of preventable suffering coming on the heels of the pandemic on the heels of you know in in the professional lives of millennials you know two once in a generation recessions in the last 15 years in the wake and this ongoing inaction uh, insufficient action on climate change it's sort of just um, really infuriating disheartening but you know no 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 jokes to be made about this one it's just really sad Let's jump into the main story. Following certain overconfident podcast hosts calling bipartisan infrastructure negotiations a waste of time last week, <laughs> uh, last Friday, President Biden Did we do that? that uh, one of us did. It was me. Uh, <laughs> President Biden announced that he had come to a compromise agreement with a bipartisan group of 11 senators on an infrastructure bill. The bipartisan framework, which comes in just shy of $1 trillion over the next five years, $1.2 trillion over eight years, with $579 billion of that being new on top of previously authorized funding. While this is a reduction from the $2 trillion this decade that Biden proposed three months ago in the American Jobs Plan, the scale of the investment is still historic. Uh, For comparison, the interstate highway system was built over 35 years at a cost equivalent to $530 billion in 2019 dollars. While the legislative language is still being worked out, I'll share here the biggest spending areas in this framework. $120 billion for roads, highways, and bridges, plus road safety investments. $94 billion for clean energy projects. $66 billion for passenger and freight rail. $65 billion for broadband access. Uh, Importantly for anyone who drinks water, the $55 billion dedicated to water infrastructure will eliminate lead pipes across the country, delivering clean drinking water for the first time to, this is sort of appalling, 10 million homes and 400,000 schools and childcare facilities. It's crazy to me that that would be needed. Yeah, that was just honestly shocking to revisit the scale of that problem that has just been lingering since like the infrastructure was first put in place hundreds of years ago. Continuing on, though, $52 billion to build more resilience into our existing infrastructure, $49 billion for public transit, which the administration is touting as the largest federal investment ever in public transit, another $77 billion in spending, including $15 billion to reach Biden's goal of 500,000 new electric vehicle charging stations and electrified buses. So, So those are some of the top lines. Here to help us build our knowledge back better is Sundar Ramanujam a research associate at CSIS who studies a wide range of issues surrounding the role of the private sector in global development challenges, including recent pieces he's co-authored on the opportunity for the U.S. in digital infrastructure and the need for U.S. leadership on quality infrastructure and sustainable infrastructure in the Colombian Amazon. He's like the CSIS <laughs> infrastructure guy. That's a, that's a high praise. Thank you, Errol and Mike. Sundar, as, as someone who's r- written quite a bit about global infrastructure I mean, Mike, Mike ran through a bunch of what's in this, but before we get to that, you know, how would you describe the current state and needs of infrastructure in the United States? Yeah, thanks, Errol. That's a, that's a pretty good question. And as you mentioned, like I, st- I studied this from a global infrastructure demand and current trends perspective. And one statistic that always, you know, it's at the tip of my tongue anytime we have to talk about it is that globally, we're talking about a $15 trillion gap in additional infrastructure investments, like whatever we're going on, we have to add on top of it between now and 2040. $15 trillion is almost three-fourths the U.S. economy. Of that 15, the United States is responsible for just over a fourth of that gap at $3.8 trillion. And that's an insane amount of money, especially for an economy which is the largest in the world. We are talking about not the U.S. not rising up its, to its full potential. One of uh, CSIS's stellar scholars, John Hillman, uh, who heads the Reconnecting Asia Project, he had this piece that talked about why the U.S. is long overdue for an upgrade. We are far from being climate or disaster resilient, and there are costs to it, right? Like, so last year, between all the floods and hurricanes and other disasters that hit us, it cost the U.S. public about $100 billion, which the public pays through not only taxes, through FEMA, 
bailouts and stuff, but also increased in- insurance premiums, loss of economic opportunities, and honestly, lives. And while it's 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 simple and easy for us to get a picture using just numbers of billions and trillions of dollars, it's not just abstract numbers anymore. We have personally experienced some of these losses and costs, uh, not just financially, but in emotional and human terms. Uh, uh, the winter storm that knocked out the power grid in Texas left millions of households without heat. I heard a story someone actually froze to death. There are farmers up in the Midwest who are struggling to use, you know, safely use modern equipment on roads, which were built like half a century ago. Bridges are collapsing, pipes are leaking sewage. The worst of this can be captured through the, uh, you know, one of the news bulletins you guys uh, shared with a building collapse in Surfside, Florida. I mean, uh, we are still waiting a thorough investigation on the root cause, but it's just tragic when you look at these things happening in America. Sundar, it was, you know, literally on the day that there was that press conference, a bridge, like a footbridge over a highway in Washington, D.C. collapsed. And it... (laughs) It was it was prosaic in a way. Right. I mean, it was so juxtaposition and you it, it simply couldn't capture um, how bad it looked uh, that we had to wait so long. Um, and there are, you know, the, the losses and costs are on the one side, but there are opportunities that we would be missing out as well. Right. Like so we're talking about adding three million new economy jobs uh uh, in this decade, if we move fast and act fast enough, that could get 170% uh, return on investment. So every dollar we pump into the infrastructure, we're not only avoiding these $100 billion a year costs, we're actually making another $170 billion, sorry, $1.7 per dollar invested back. So for every dollar invested, we're getting a dollar and 70 cents back? Back. That's the profit you make or the, the growth you make on it. If you actually invest in infrastructure. If you right actually now. invest on the right sets of infrastructure, which lots of it we've touched upon and we can unpack it in a bit. But yes, that's the gist of it. And there's a whole other conversation to be had about if we sit long enough, if we are unwilling, unable or procrastinating on this whole thing, uh, we probably are going to let our geopolitical competitors, typically authoritarian nations, uh, to exploit our vulnerabilities and our uh, quote-unquote lethargy. Right. So like, uh, Errol, you and I, when we get coffee, every time I point to you at a line moped or a Revell moped and say that is something that was developed and manufactured in China. And they are taking advantage of the first player move in U.S. markets. It's not even Africa or Latin America anymore. It's happening right here in Miami, New York and D.C. That's the state. I mean, if I wanted to capture it. It's quite the whirlwind tour. And, and I think it you know, I, I want to ask next, Sundar, about how you see the Venn diagram overlapping between this, uh, what was announced last week, this sort of bipartisan quote-unquote deal, which I think we'll get into a little bit as to how fully cooked that deal is, but at least there was an announcement of a bipartisan deal. But but from the, the outlines that you've been able to see, Sundar, how closely does what's in that deal overlap with what the needs are as you just described them? So let me start my response by saying this. The last time the United States invested in an infrastructure project that fundamentally transformed the United States uh, economy, it was when the world welcomed Tom Hanks and Mel Gibson, right? Uh, So it was like, Close to close to seventy years ago, you know, Mike mentioned it being upwards of five hundred billion in twenty twenty money uh, over a period of thirty five years. But the single piece of legislation in fifty six, which a Republican president signed, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, was in today's dollar terms two hundred fifty billion in dollars worth of investment. Pretty big money, pretty transformative. Like we changed how we did commerce in America, right? So. Because of the gap, you know, the the low bar that's already been set, uh, I'm giving whether or not we give this plan a B plus or an A, I'm pretty upbeat about it. So let me start by saying that. Uh, And a good reasons to be upbeat about it, right? Like, even though it won't solve all our problems, we are putting a lot more money into surface transportation, roads, bridges, ports, and, you know, railways. I mean, is it really a Biden-backed bill if Amtrak doesn't get a sizable chunk, right? Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> I think it, uh, it would have been like, 
the the robots have taken over the White House when when Amtrak didn't get some money. Like <laughs> you, you would have known that like the invasion had happened. I think. Uh, Touche. That's a very good point. But in addition to that, you know, it's uh, true to Biden's Biden administration and uh, much of uh, Congress's push for middle class focus with policymaking. They're investing in. Uh, public transit, taking the pressure off the working class communities, some money, like Mike listed out a few uh, line items, like lead pipes will be getting replaced, and we are uh, targeting racial equity um, and uh, racial justice related issues through uh, targeted and, you know, communities of color intentional, uh, that's a mouthful, intentional uh, infrastructure and housing investments. Long overdue. Right. Uh, but it still doesn't go far enough on certain issues. Uh, I know a lot of scholars and some of my friends who uh, would characterize this as an insufficient or doesn't go far enough bill in terms of clean energy or uh, climate change related issues. Uh, it does provide some funding to jumpstart the electric vehicle market. It doesn't do enough, though, by some uh, standards and measures. Uh, we are investing in modernizing power grids, but does not go far enough in eliminating fossil fuel-based power generation. And there's a long list of grievances. And legitimately, uh, those concerns are coming out of the fact that this is, at the end of the day, a bipartisan deal which meant something had to give so that we could get some other folks on board. And, you know, that's the messiness of sausage making in D.C. That being said, my, uh, my only other thought on this is that this is only the game at the federal level, right? The hope is not lost. Uh, one of the things when uh, we talk about in, in my day job, focusing on global development, we talk about countries as big as the United States, like let's say India or Brazil is, when you can't get Brasilia or New Delhi to do something the way you think should be done, try going after the state capitals and state houses, right? Subnationally, mm. so much can be done. A great example uh, is Colorado's uh, 2010, 2010 Clean Air and Clean Jobs Act. And, you know, I could completely wonk this uh, uh, talk show, uh, this conversation up, but the Colorado used the existing financial instruments. They've been around since the 19th century, like bonds and securities. And they used it very creatively to replace retiring coal power generation, ensure a transition for people employed in those generating uh, stations, and adopting 100% green, 100% clean energy solutions for the state. And that's a model that not only deserves to be highlighted, but it needs to be scaled up in every state that wants to do it. And this could be yeah. a grassroots movement. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really that's a really good point. And you you mentioned that this, you know, was boiled down to something um, that was quite a bit less in ambition and scope than some of the previous plans. So Mike, can I bring you in here? There was this thing called the American Jobs Plan and would love for you to to talk about that a little bit, but specifically in terms of policy, the framing of this bipartisan deal is that it focused on quote unquote traditional infrastructure, roads, bridges, broadband internet, things like that, as opposed to the more expansive definition of infrastructure represented by the American Jobs Plan, things like human infrastructure, care economy, if anybody who follows Elizabeth Warren's Instagram feed or Pete Buttigieg or other people uh, like that, you, you sort of, uh, it's, it's almost comical the degree to which infrastructure has been defined as everything. And I don't mean comical and sort of diminishing it. I, I just think like there was a joke in DC a couple weeks ago of, Oh, I just got a coffee. It's infrastructure. You know, it was just like very, very broad. But I think they make a really compelling case. You know, would you agree with that, Mike? And is it accurate to say that what have we lost going from the American Jobs Plan to this bipartisan framework? Yeah. So in, in prepping for this conversation, I looked through a bunch of articles and releases and, and ultimately I put together a side by side of spending in the bipartisan infrastructure framework announced last week versus the American Jobs Plan Biden proposed in March. It's, it's actually in a Google spreadsheet that I shared on my Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. We'll put it in the show it's notes. It's a really sexy Google spreadsheet, Mike, I will say. <laughs> you even had a cool title. What is it called, Mike? Never miss an opportunity for a pun. Rainbows, but not butterflies. All right, that's what's in <sighs> So good. Uh, so basically, there are two kinds of differences between the two bills. There's the what and there's the how much. So we'll start with the what. Broadly, it's right to say the bipartisan deal adopts a less expansive and more traditional definition of infrastructure. And we talked about what it includes, um, but what it doesn't include that was in the jobs plan are things like 
$400 billion to expand home-based and community-based care for the elderly and the disabled, $300 billion in tax credits for clean energy projects and the clean energy standard uh, for electricity providers, another $300 billion for manufacturing and small business support, $180 billion for technology research and development, $213 billion to build, preserve, and retrofit affordable places to live, $100 billion each for workforce development and school modernization, and and the list sort of goes on, but even that is over like one point three trillion dollars. That's a lot. Spending that was uh, just zeroed out, right? And and generally speaking, as the way I look at this, I'm not that worried about the differences in the what between the two plans for a bunch of reasons. Um, you know, some of these things like the four hundred billion dollars in elderly care weren't particularly well defined in the American Jobs Plan. There's still a lot of work to do to build that out. In other cases, like support for manufacturing and R&D, some of this has shown up in other bills, like the $250 billion industrial policy bill that was passed a few weeks ago, which we talked about last week. And in general, while we don't know, you know what commitments or, or uh, promises were made behind closed doors, logically, anything that isn't in the bipartisan bill should be on the table for the reconciliation bill. So there's, there's another bite at all those apples. Yeah, and we're, we want to talk about the reconciliation bill in a little bit, because I think that's the... It's sort of like, yes, there was a bipartisan deal that was a small subset of the much broader deal, but don't worry, progressives, not all hope is lost. There's this other thing that we can think about doing. And so we'll dive into that, I'm sure. Uh, a little bit yeah, later. the politics are really interesting. Not as interesting as the media would have you believe for like the last four days. Uh, but I, I agree with that. <laughs> where, where I'm more concerned is the differences in how much. Right. So the bipartisan bill includes five hundred seventy nine billion dollars in new spending. But if all of that spending were taken up to the levels proposed in the American Jobs Plan, it would be nine hundred two billion dollars, meaning in aggregate, those spending areas were reduced by thirty six percent. And it was meaningful stuff, too. Right. So mm -hmm. in water infrastructure, for example, the lead pipe removal is huge, but lead is not the only contaminant out there in our water systems. They cut out half of the investment proposed for water infrastructure to modernize water systems across the country. Um, including, you know, a lot of underserved urban and rural areas. And, you know, ultimately the crises that we've seen in Flint, Michigan, Jackson, Mississippi, and elsewhere, they've been caused by more than just lead. Another big area was electric vehicles. I didn't know that, actually. I, you know, you're led to believe that it was, you know, there's lead in the pipes, but I didn't, I didn't know that there's all this other stuff. Um, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, that we, we, we should maybe do another episode on that. Uh, another big area was electric vehicles. So uh, we're getting charging stations and electric buses for $15 billion, but the original plan had $174 billion to drive a transformation of the whole industry, including rebuilding supply chains, promoting the manufacturing of batteries and EVs in the U.S., uh, and electrifying not just buses, but freight, which is actually huge. We talked about water infrastructure, electric vehicles. There's this other important idea of reconnecting communities that have been displaced by past infrastructure investments. So I saw this when I worked in Baltimore with I-83 that basically slices through the city. The original proposal, the American Jobs Plan, had $20 billion to fix these problems, which would be a huge step toward remaking our cities for people instead of cars. Uh, the current deal cut that to just $1 billion. So, is that like I, the purple line in, in like outside of D.C. too? Is that kind of the same idea where – Well, the, the purple line is, is a public transit line. This is talking about is mostly highways – that cut through okay. most communities of color and basically cut them off from accessibility to the rest of the city for the purpose of bringing in people in cars from the suburbs. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I was just thinking about it because when you were saying sort of reconnecting communities that had been displaced, there's lots of that obviously in the, in the greater DC area as well. And, and you know, the, the folks who are providing critical services and care in places like Bethesda, uh, a lot of those folks live in places like Prince George's County in Maryland and have to go into the city and then back out to Maryland as opposed to a 15-minute metro ride if they were uh, a purple line. Um, and so I was that's where my brain went. But I, I think the broader point is that this infrastructure, and Sundar mentioned the eloquent term that they were using in, in terms of targeting uh, vulnerable communities, but I think that that continues to be a focus on the democratic side of sort of righting some of those wrongs and, and addressing some of those inequities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're, we're certainly all purple line stands here, you know, just yeah, again, not, not knowing where conversations went behind closed doors, but those areas where the investment level was cut significantly, as opposed to, 
you know, as opposed to removed altogether um, and cut to the detriment of like real people who would, would benefit from those investments. Um, that's much more concerning to me. So it's easy to imagine, imagine Joe Manchin or Gene Shaheen thinking these issues have been addressed. Um, and frankly, on the other side, like a Rob Portman or a Lisa Murkowski feeling a sense of betrayal if funding is directly increased from levels they agreed to in a compromise. You know, all, all of that sort of an, amounts to me to a sense that like we need to be on offense with infrastructure policy right now. You know, I think Sundar mentioned the, the state of infrastructure and the lack of investment over the years. And we're in this moment where interest rates are still low, uh, right? The U.S. government can basically get money for free whenever it wants to. Um, but it no longer seems like they'll stay low forever. We're starting to see inflation creep up. We're starting to see the Fed talk a little bit more about raising rates over time. Uh, so we've got this opportunity for free money like for a limited time only. And to be nickel and diming you know, water infrastructure at this moment just seems really short-sighted. It seems weird. Also, I really liked your Freudian slip there. It's easy to imagine. We we should actually um, we should make that a thing. Imagine all the people. Sundar, I, I want to talk about the politics in a little bit. But Sundar, any thoughts on what Mike just said? Um, just one uh, addition to what he said about the interest rates be, rates being low, even if they were not right, and uh, we can't imagine it getting super crazy in the next few uh, months, if not years. Even if it's not, there is a pretty good Republican Prince Party principle that we can adopt, which is it's okay for us to spend and look at the absolute deficit rising as long as the economy is growing with it, right? That was a justification when they introduced the 2017 tax cuts, that as a percentage of the economy, our def deficits will start to look better and go down. I think that principle holds true. If our infrastructure investments boost uh, economy, and I, I'm prepared to include the human infrastructure or investment in human skills and development, if it boosts our uh, economic growth and output by leaps and bounds, uh, we're not going to be thinking too much about this stuff uh, as to how many billions were spent or not. Uh, I think it'll start looking pretty good. I think it'll pay off in the long term. That was my uh, addition to. Yeah, I appreciate it, Sundar. You know, I think fair to say that there may have been a lack of total intellectual honesty in, you know, the Republican point of view on deficits and deficit spending over the years. Well, but inflation, Mike, the big bad inflation bear is coming for us actually is already here. So deficit spending, inflation, it's it's all happening because of Democrats, right? <laughs> Something like that. Let's let's actually turn, Errol, to the political side of things. Like, you know, so a lot of the news coverage since this announcement has been purely focused on the political. And, and there's been quite a lot of hullabaloo, I would say, <laughs> throughout the weekend and the Sunday. How do you assess where we are politically on this infrastructure? Hullabaloo is, I think, a good... Uh, encapsulation of where we are. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the articles that I have read and the coverage have not just been about the politics, they've been about the process. And I think this is why you and I, Mike, were interested in having a conversation about the policy and this, this sort of Venn diagram and like, does this actually do what we need it to do? Where are the gaps? What are we moving forward? But uh, of course, that's not going to get clicks. Uh, and so that's not what gets reported. I was about to say that's not what sells newspapers, but I feel like that might have dated me a little bit. <laughs> do you still get the newspaper, Mike? I do not. I, I do get yeah. missed in print because I tried to switch my subscription to digital and they told me it would cost more. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you just you just described the problem uh, very well. But yeah, I mean, look, my, my initial hot take or lukewarm take perhaps was that there were all these flashy videos that came out uh, after the the bipartisan talks. And there was obviously the, the press conference in front of the White House. And it was really kind of nice, I want to say, to see the Republican and the Democratic senators together with President Joe Biden harping back to a perhaps simpler time where bipartisan deal making was was actually a thing. And I, I perhaps that splash that came out of the I have no inside track or knowledge on this, but perhaps that splash was a little bit intended in that they wanted to create a sense of inevitability that like, oh, we agreed. This is a thing. There's no reneging. You know, the, the train has left the station. But of course, like almost as soon as there was that that announcement and that press conference, there was just a ton of pearl clutching across the media landscape and, you know, in, in certain people on Capitol Hill about, 
oh, the president reneged on his promise because, you know, he said that or, or insinuated, I can't even remember what the specific thing was. I don't really care, to be honest with you, that there was some insinuation that he was going to veto this bipartisan thing if Congress didn't also do the bigger reconciliation package, which is, we haven't talked about that too much here, but it's essentially, let's take all the other stuff in the American jobs plan and, and put it into basically call it a, a budget budget related something and do a budget maneuver called reconciliation so that they can pass it on a party line basis and, and avoid the filibuster, which, you know, listeners will remember that's what they did with the COVID relief plan. It passed on a purely partisan basis. And, and so there was sort of this thought that that would be done with this infrastructure stuff, even though that that was completely telegraphed. Like we knew, Mike, as early as early April, that that, that was exactly what was going to happen. I mean, Biden, the bipartisan, was was absolutely going to try to get this done the old fashioned way. And all the other progressive goals were going to get stuffed into a reconciliation package like that. That was so obvious that Senator Roy Blunt, Republican of Missouri, in early April said, and I quote, my advice to the White House has been take the bipartisan win do this in a more traditional infrastructure way. And then if you want to force the rest of the package on Republicans in the Congress and the country, you can certainly do that. That's, you know, good advice, Senator, that was heated and then everybody clutched pearls and, and freaked out. This is just like, so this whole narrative is just so dumb for so many reasons. Like to your point, everybody knew that this was happening. Nancy Pelosi said the same day that press conference happened that she wouldn't you know, bring bring this bill to the floor unless there was a reconciliation bill tied to it. It was all this like outrage over the semantics between, uh, you know, is this a veto threat or just a linkage or just a, you know, theoretical tie? Like it was, no, Mike, it was utter betrayal. Utter right. Betrayal. Maybe there was like a little bit of, of quiet part out loud involved here. But like we just spent four years with like, no quiet part. I, I just, I don't understand like, how, how the media still had pearls left to clutch. The only thing that, that I think was positive that came out of this is that there was a source close to uh, one of the senators on the Republican side involved in the negotiation who said that that senator told them that when Biden issued this you know, veto threat, non-veto threat, whatever it was, that he heard Mitt Romney swear for the first time. And I just think that's really delightful to me. I mean, how can that be true, right? I mean, Mitt Romney's seen some stuff. I use the word stuff. Deliberately. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm sure he's sworn before. It's just, has he done it in front of his colleagues? Uh, that, that yeah. whole, that whole like imagery and like, you know, that like moment of, uh, of, of shock from his Republican colleague is, is a beautiful image to me. Yeah, look, I don't want to I don't want to beat the political horse to death. But I, you know, look, I, I think in all likelihood, they'll figure something out. I think it's too big of a win for an administration that sees the opportunity for big wins dwindling. Something else that was interesting to me on this is if you look at the spending amounts in the American jobs plan versus the bipartisan deal, there's not a whole lot of alignment. There, right, you know, some of the biggest line items in in the jobs plan, the four hundred billion on elderly care and three hundred billion in in tax credits for renewables, right? They were some of the things that got cut. However, if you look at the release, like the fact sheet that the administration put out on the jobs plan, and you go down like the first ten items as they're listed in that release, those are the items that got taken up in this compromise. It was the exact yeah. order that they that they put them in in their release and their rhetoric around this, if not the exact amounts they proposed to spend. Um, and so it, it sort of feels like this was something the administration may have had in mind. Yeah, look, I don't I don't have any inside track, but I I do know some of the people on the inside, and these are very smart, very savvy people. Um, and so I, uh, again, Mike, I have no confirmation or denial of that, but that seems infinitely reasonable. So look, I, I think that there's still a long way to go, right? When you read about this bipartisan quote unquote deal and the reason that there's air quotes around that is there's lots of devilish details left to be sorted out. You know, it's all gonna happen 
when it's 100 degrees outside in D.C., which signals that, you know, Congress doesn't really do a whole lot in D.C. when it's hot out um, over the summer. So, you know, color me skeptical that this is going to happen anytime soon. But uh, last week on News and Brews, we were skeptical and, and we got proven wrong. So maybe if we are skeptical, then there will be movement. Love that. That's like no way it's going to happen. <laughs> Reverse juju. Reverse juju. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. Cinda, there's, there's one more area that I wanted to explore with you. And Sundar, as someone who focuses on international development, first and foremost, there was a refrain that Brendan Nyan, who's a government professor at Dartmouth, used repeatedly on Twitter during the Trump years. Trump would put a family member in a key administration position or deploy the military against peaceful protests or have his cabinet be you know, publicly obsequious at a televised meeting, etc. And the refrain was, what would you think if you saw it in another country? And I was thinking about that here. Like, first, just at a basic level, what would you think if you saw this infrastructure process in another country? And it, it sort of seems like remarkably functional so far. And I'm wondering if there is some importance to that. Like, have we, meaning have I, been too dismissive of bipartisan, bipartisanship here? Um, does, does having a bipartisan process matter from the perspective of other world leaders or advocates for democracy uh, in, in other parts of the world? Or am I taking it too far? I don't think you're taking it too far. I think you are. I mean, so that's 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 a question. I believe not only President number forty-six was forty-seven, eight, nine, probably till fifty. The next five presidents will have to think about because we've had a pretty tumultuous four-year term uh, under the last administration, right? And as Dono so beautifully uh, captured about uh, Biden's uh, President Biden's summit in Europe, one of the lingering concerns is like, well, look, Biden's back, America's back, but are you here to stay? The answer to that cannot just be, of course, I'm here because, you know, there's going to be a republic, there's going to be a government beyond his administration. And one way we can safeguard and assure our allies and partners and other developing and other countries in the world sending sending the right kinds of consistent signals is by ensuring we have a bipartisan process. I mean, the whole point, not, not to get too punny here, but, you know, we need to build bridges while building bridges, what do I mean by that? Uh, while we're doing uh, infrastructure, it's important that we find allies from those who we don't traditionally agree so that they would not renege on a commitment they made under this administration and decide to start suing in the courts or defunding these projects, etc. That's the best way to ensure policy stability. That's the best way to show the world that uh, we mean business when we talk about real grown-up stuff like infrastructure, digital standards, and leadership in the world by making sure it is bipartisan. But there's also another point uh, here that I, I, I believe the administration is trying to send, that if the prevailing way of infrastructure development is the Belt and Road Initiative, where the Chinese Communist Party is going to use crooked ways or corrupt techniques and tactics to fund low-quality or poor-quality infrastructure, then the exact opposite of that is one where two political groups as divergent as Republicans and Democrats coming together to do this. And not only will that be good for the world as it looks towards uh, new, you know, alternative models of doing infrastructure, it's, it's good for America, right? Like, um, I'm, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but, you know, the Financial Times editorial board seems to agree with me. They put out an opinion piece, and one of their lines that caught my attention, and I'm going to try and see if I can get it laminated and hung on my wall, uh, civilized politics is the ultimate infrastructure, and I believe if we do this right and get most of our wins, if not all of it, through bipartisan means, uh, it's probably going to jumpstart some goodwill in the system. And uh, Lord knows we desperately need that. I think that's incredibly well said, Tinder. Um, and that's I a think fantastic it's, line. And I think the fact that you want to laminate it and put it on your wall makes you like the perfect guest on News and Brews. That's like the nerdiest thing I've ever heard. Um <laughs> I, I got, I got, I got the Declaration of Independence framed and hung up outside my bathroom. You know. So. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what other things do you have on your my wall? Clo- my closet um, has Lincoln's second inaugural address. You know, just regular things that inspire me. Yeah, just regular <laughs> things. <laughs> I think the only thing, Mike, that I would add to that is our messiness is public and it's transparent and it's nonviolent. What was so shocking and jarring about January sixth was that. It was it was violent in a way that U.S. partisanship and and rancor usually isn't, and I think that was what kind of shook us to our core. 
And the fact that, that we have disagreements, the different parties have disagreements on the scale and the scope and the details of an infrastructure bill, and yet we're sort of still kind of moving forward, albeit in fits and starts, we're still moving forward. You know, we're taking pot shots at each other in the pearl clutching media, but we're not fighting with one another. I think those are all really strong signals um, because that's not the way that autocracies and author authoritarian regimes do it. Um, and I think the fact that we air these grievances and the messiness in public, I think, is scary to to those places. So I, I really appreciate you ending the formal part of this, as Sundar called it, the talk show, uh, with with that question, because I think it's a it's a really good way uh, and, and sort of an optimistic note on which to end. Donna Sien, did you want to chime in here? Hi. Yes. Thank you. I have to say this conversation is so nerdy. It's my favorite thing. So thanks <laughs> all of you for discussing infrastructure this week. And nice to see Cinder here. So I, my question, I actually, in classic think tank fashion, I have a two part question. Perfect. So on the, on the, <laughs> on the first part, um, it seems to me infrastructure in the U S kind of always needs to revolve around something shiny to get people involved and to get people fired up. And it feels like right now it's electric vehicles. And I'm wondering, especially Mike, since you're you know in touch with private sector, et cetera, do you feel like there could be enough private uh, excitement, private investment into EVs that the government and public spending can actually focus on other things, things that I would say are really important, like public transit and mass transit, et cetera. Because I see this and I feel like we talk about EVs all the time, and I'm wondering how much money is going to go towards that. So that's my first question is how much could the private sector take care of when we talk about EVs so that public spending can focus on something else? And then the second part of my question is more for Sundar is what you see on the global stage, where are those priorities? Because my guess is it's not as much the shiny stuff like EVs. But I'm curious what the conversations are on what the infrastructure priorities are, not just the top light and the top line numbers on spending, but where it should be going. Thanks, Donacian. Great question around EVs and transportation more broadly. Part of your premise is, is absolutely right, which is EVs have crossed over that hump of the infant industry, right, where there is a, a lot of mainstream investment happening from private sector companies in them right now. You know, you've, you've got GM, Ford, Volvo, every major automaker essentially not just saying that they are investing in EVs, but in most cases saying they are moving exclusively to EVs in the next 10 to 15 years. So that transition is happening. If you even look at this bill that was passed, right, you've got a good deal of investment in EV infrastructure, $15 billion, but that's $15 billion out of uh, almost a trillion in spending over the next five years. Um, and a lot of that actually is the, the EV spending is, is over a longer time horizon. I think you're seeing an acknowledgement of that. I think you're also seeing, you know, the right has been skeptical about EVs for a long time because they love big oil. The left has been skeptical because there are a lot of, you know, a lot of the problems that come with cars, um, some of which are fundamentally about just having a two-ton hunk of metal with you when you are going around the corner to the convenience store. A lot of those things don't go away when you just change the, the power source of the car. Um, and so I think it's totally fair to say that EVs are kind of the shiny object right now. But I think particularly in kind of urbanist circles on the left, uh, and I think Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, is more of that ilk than uh, fair to say anyone who's been in that role before him. It, it, there's a lot of uh, widespread acknowledgement that EVs are not not a panacea and, um, and in many cases, not even a solution. And so I think that's reflected in the spending priorities that you see in this bill, where there's a great deal more investment in public transit, in rail, in other forms of transportation, as opposed to uh, electric vehicles. And, and you know, with, with the role of government in electric vehicles being to roll out some of those things that private sector companies aren't as good at you know, infrastructure that will be shared by everyone in terms of charging stations, publicly owned vehicles like uh, like school buses and, and city buses. So I, I think that's all reflected and, and it comes, there's almost a, a strange uh, alignment of priorities on the right and the left um, at, when it comes to EVs for that reason. Yeah. So Donna, to answer your question, it's actually 
you know, it's interesting you had that a second because uh, on the global stage, uh, infrastructure priorities uh, is actually a snooze fest. There aren't too much of shiny objects going around, right? Because the focus is on how do we how do we bring in this additional investment when we are basically tapped out on foreign assistance, right? Like hundreds, just a couple of hundred billion dollars is what you get each year, but you need over a trillion to pay for infrastructure stuff just in the developing world. So focusing on catalytic financing, by that I mean, how do we use the limited public resources that USAID has to offer to bring in uh, General Electric or, uh, or you know, um, Philips or any of the other infrastructure private sector investors uh, on board so that they could chip in uh, a disproportionately greater share to bridge the gap? Uh, the focus is on procurement reforms, right? It's the most snooze-fest of a topic in, uh, in global governance and development, but it's important because uh, millions of public sector procurement officials are responsible for roads, bridges, and other stuff in India or Brazil or Indonesia for that matter. But along with that, and especially in the 2019 Osaka G20 summit, there was a lot of talk about how do we make our infrastructure not only resilient to climate change, and disaster, but also resilient to future technologies, right? Future-proofing technologies, uh, future-proofing infrastructure is an important important aspect because you don't want to spend all that money now and then realize, oh, we got automated vehicles, so let's do this all over again from the scratch. That's really not how developing worlds want to operate or can operate even if they wanted to. So those are the areas that are of priority, and uh, we made some progress. COVID-19 has obviously set us back. COVID-19 has also shown us a new priority area, which is it's time for us to take the digital divide seriously and get, you know, double down on our investments in closing digital infrastructure. And oh, by the way, when we do that, uh, and this is an area you probably familiar yourself, Dana, uh, let's have a, uh, a, a standard framework uh, to govern digital, digital technologies and internet uh, so that it's not a patchwork of national regulations that could actually end up end up backfiring on all of us uh, in the digital world. So uh, I hope I've answered your question on that. A topic, again, for the future, I think digital infrastructure is such an important part of not only this bill, but a part of moving the United States and, quite frankly, the rest of the world uh, into the 20th century, much less the 21st century. So Sundar... Thank you. Thank you for, for joining and for sharing your thoughts and, and really, you know, diving into the Wonka sphere with us. Uh, it was really great to have you on. And Mike, what do you think? Did we fix it? I think it? we fixed it. I think we yeah. fixed it. Thanks so much, Sundar. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yaboke. Our guest today was Sundar Ramanujan of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Our producer is Alana Nevins. News and Brews recordings happen live each Tuesday evening at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Join the live conversation on Greenroom or listen to the podcast available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.